I'd like to turn again in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. And uh, this evening I'd like to speak to you on the bruised reed and the smoking flax. The context of verse 20, which I'm taking as my text, is the opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ from his enemies regarding the subject of the Sabbath day. I'm sure you're all familiar with the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. The Sabbath indeed was holy. But the problem came in Judaism where the scribes and the Pharisees added their own man-made traditions to the law of the fourth commandment, the Sabbath day. They had their own particular rigid interpretations of this command. Now, Jesus, and I say this reverently, got himself into trouble constantly because he disregarded the traditions of men, which he said made the word of God null and void. And because of that, he incurred the wrath of the religious establishment. Here we see a case in point of this. As he and his disciples were uh, passing through the grain fields, they plucked grain and they ate it on the Sabbath day. And the cry came from the Pharisees, that is not lawful. Now, there's no law in the Old Testament that prohibited plucking of grain in order to eat. Gleaning of handfuls of wheat from a, from a neighbor's field to satisfy one's immediate hunger in Deuteronomy 23, verse 25, is explicitly permitted. What was prohibited was labor for the sake of profit, earning a living. So the Lord, to point this fact out, appeals to King David in verses 3 and 4, citing how he ate of the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat. And then in verses 5 and 6, he also appeals to the priests who were working on the Sabbath day, theoretically. Often you hear people say, even today, how do pastors and ministers get away with working on the Lord's day. 
Well, here's a similar situation where the priests worked on the Sabbath, but their work was permitted being the work of the Lord. Then the Lord made a staggering statement in verse 6. He says, there is one greater than the temple. In other words, there is one greater than all your laws. And he is here now with you. And you don't recognize him. Now, what the Lord was actually doing in claiming to be himself greater than the temple, he was claiming deity. I am God. I am with you. I am greater than the temple. Yet you are ignoring me. And getting taken up with all your intricate man-made laws and regulations. And then in verse 7, he appeals to the prophet Hosea that God would rather have from men's hearts certain sentiments rather than sacrifices. Then in verse 8, Jesus declares himself as Lord of the Sabbath. And in verses 9 to 14, if you look at it, he asserts his lordship over the Sabbath by healing on the Sabbath day. The Pharisees posed the question to him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? So he, he, he heals. Now, Jewish tradition, let me emphasize that, Jewish tradition prohibited the practice of medicine on the Sabbath. The Pharisees said, it's wrong. You should not heal anybody or be a physician on the Sabbath day. Only in threatening situations where a life is at risk. That was the tradition of the Pharisees. But if we read the Old Testament, we find there is no actual law that forbade giving of medicine or healing or any other acts of mercy. The Lord gives this principle that has been completely lost in the Pharisaical religion, that it is always lawful to do good on the Sabbath, as well as whatever other days you're doing it. So he not only healed this man with the withered hand, but in verse 15, it says, and these are, these are beautiful words, that he healed all the people who came to him, who thronged him on the Sabbath day, demonstrating the compassion of God towards those who are affected by sin. The spirit of the law is not to shut out men and women from God's goodness, but to bring them in, to mend those who are in need of it. And then in verse 16, we see that after he healed them all, he warned them not to make him known. It would seem that uh, he was concerned about the potential zeal 
of those in Judaism who were trying to, uh, if I can put it this way, to press the Lord Jesus into a, a conquering hero mode. In other words, they thought he was going to overcome the Romans and Herod. He was going to bring deliverance and bring the kingdom to the earth at that particular time. So in order not to play into their hands, he tells them, don't tell anybody about this. Now, why does he do that? This is the reason, at least in this context, that to do such was contrary to the prophetic picture of Messiah that had been given in the Old Testament. That's the context of the verse where we read in verse 20, a bruised reed he will not break and smoking flax he will not quench. Verse 17 shows us that the Lord told them not to tell anyone that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant whom I have chosen. In other words, quoting Isaiah 42 verses 1 to 4, he wants to demonstrate that the Messiah who has come to fulfill God's prophetic promises in the Old Testament is the exact opposite and contrary to the typical first century rabbinical expectations of who he would be. They wanted a conquering king. They wanted a political leader. They wanted him to have an agenda of politics, to come and wage a military campaign. They wanted a great fanfare. But here comes this this gentle Messiah riding on a donkey, the colt of an ass, with meekness, with humility, even declaring righteousness to, this an unthinkable thought, to the Gentiles. That was not the Jewish expectation. Verse 19 says, he will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the street. This Messiah that was promised of God would not try to stir up a revolution or force his way into power. That was not the mandate of Messiah, to bring God's kingdom by the sword. But it's this aspect and attribute of Messiah that I want you to note in verse 20. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. What Matthew is doing there is he is conveying the sharp contrast between Christ's wicked opponents and Christ himself. His opponents want to destroy him. Verse 14, they want to wipe him out. And all those weak and humble souls in society, 
that don't reach up to their standard of religious ethic. Yet here's Christ himself, actually in bodily form, in the midst of his own people, God's beloved son, the servant of Jehovah, the divine and human redeemer upon whom the father has poured out his spirit without measure. And what is his frame of mind and disposition of heart? It's the very opposite to the Pharisees and the religious establishment. The commentator William Hendrickson puts it like this. What a contrast between the cruelty of the Pharisees and the kindness of Jesus. Between their vanity and his reserve. Between their love for display and his his meekness. They plan to murder, verse 14 and are callous and indifferent to the agony of the handicapped. Is it lawful? Is it lawful? Is their cry. Never is it kind. But he is completely different, says Hendrickson. A bruised reed shall he not break. A smoking flax shall he not quench. Now, I want to ask three questions of this text in context this evening. First of all, who is the bruised reed and the smoking flax? Second, what is Christ's attitude and action towards these? And then thirdly, what consolation can we take from a text such as this. So first of all, then, let's ask the question, who is the bruised reed and the smoking flax? Well, a bruised reed may have been, and I believe probably was, a musical pipe. Shepherds out in the field would have used a reed in order to shepherd their sheep. And, of course, if a reed was bruised as a musical instrument, it would become inharmonious. It would be harsh to the ear. And probably it would have been rendered broken and then smashed up by the shepherd and thrown aside. In other words, a bruised reed for a shepherd was useless. It was purposeless. It failed to fulfill the purpose for which it had, it had been made. Now, other people take a, a reed just in its elementary form. They take it to be the reed stalk that, that you would find in the marshes. If it's taken as that, at, at best, a reed is slender, isn't it? But if it's bruised, it can't bear any weight at all. It's fit for nothing, only the fire. This imagery is found in Scripture. We read it in uh, 2 Kings 18, verse 21. 
that Israel were looking to Egypt for deliverance rather than looking to God. And God said to them, now look, you are trusting in the staff of this bruised reed, Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. So it's something useless. It is something weak. That is the bruised reed. What is a smoking flax? Well, the word in Greek is linon, uh, from which we get our word linen. And it's used as a wick for a lamp or a candle. A smoking flax was a smoking wick. What would happen to it is it would be extinguished. You see, a Jew may maybe would, would take a horn and pour oil into it when they were traveling, and they would take it like a torch. They would put this little bit of linen wick into it, this flax, and they would light it. Now and again, what would happen was instead of bringing forth a light to guide them, it would start to smoke. It would irritate the, their eyes and even blind them. What you would do in that instance was you would just quench it. In other words, its purpose was to give forth light, to guide, to see. But all it was doing was producing smoke that blinded. Now, both of these figures, the bruised reed, a smoking flax, I think it's obvious, and particularly in this context, that it's really speaking for weakness. It's representing helpless, helplessness, even those, even those people in Jewish society at this time who were weak in their faith, uh, of little faith. Do you remember that John the Baptist was reported to be doubting who the Messiah was, whether Jesus was truly the Messiah? And uh, I'm not going to go into whether that was the case or not, whether he doubted or didn't doubt. But the Lord Jesus spoke and said to the multitude concerning John, What went you out into the wilderness to see? A reed? Shaken with the wind? The figure of doubt being blown about, change, transition. It also speaks of those who are despised and rejected by the Pharisees. The weak. Those who the Pharisees were impotent to help with their doctrines and with their religious system. I think that's represented in this man with a withered hand. The Pharisees couldn't do anything to help a man like that. All they could do was cast him out of the synagogue and out of the temple. What we have here in this bruised reed and smoking flax is, is the figure 
of people who are deemed as useless and purposeless by the world and even by the religious establishment. The reed was made to make a noise, but if it's bruised, it can't. The flax was made to make a light, but if it smokes, it blinds. It may even cause others not to see. I think the bruised reed and the smoking flax are those who the Lord Jesus spoke of as poor in spirit. That is, people who see themselves as they are. It could be people who feel the weight of their sin upon them. It could be the sick of soul who feel a need of a physician. It could be those who esteem themselves as little children. Luke 4 puts them as the brokenhearted, the captives, the blind, the bruised. I wonder, do you fit into any of those descriptive categories? If you think about it, what is weaker than a bruised reed or a smoking flax? If a, a bird lands upon a bruised reed, it'll break. A smoking flax perhaps only has one little ember of fire in it that even a child's breath can blow out. It's a picture of frailty, of brittleness, of purposelessness, of, of weakness, of poverty of spirit of the sense of being despised. It might even be a figure for those who have the least isolated spark of desire after God. It might represent those who are wounded in their spirit because a reed is a cylinder, basically. There's nothing in the middle of it. And when the reed is bruised, its strength is destroyed. Does it speak of those who are bruised in spirit? I wonder, have you ceased to burn clearly? Maybe there are other zealous Christians and violently, like the Pharisees, they would just dispose of you because you're so weak, you're no use. Who is this, the, the bruised reed and the smoking flax? Listen to what Spurgeon says in his morning and evening devotions. Some of God's children are made strong. God has his Samson's here and there who can pull up Gaza's gates and carry them to the top of the hill. He has a few mighties who are lion-like men but the majority of his people are a timid, trembling race. They are like starlings, frightened at every passerby. A little fearful flock. If temptation comes, they are taken like birds in a snare. If trial threatens them, they are ready to faint. Their frail skiff is tossed up and down by every wave. They are drifted along like a seabird on the crest of the billows, 
weak things, without strength, without wisdom, without foresight, says Spurgeon. Well, do you feel like that? A bruised reed? A smoking flax? Well, hopefully we see who these people are. But secondly, we want to ask the question, what is Christ's attitude and action towards these people? This is the point of the passage. To contrast the attitude of Messiah, who Isaiah prophesied would come, and the attitude of the Pharisees, who were supposedly looking for him. Christ's work, he says, is not to break the bruised reed. It is not to quench the smoking flax. He wants to restore the bruised reed. He wants to rekindle the smoking flax. We see Christ speaking here of his desire in tender compassion toward the lowliest of the lost. He didn't come into the world to gather a strong band of men for a revolution, but he came to show mercy to the weak. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 29? They're, they're wonderful words. Words that give hope to all of us. He says, for you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised God has chosen and things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Broken reeds. Anyone who is backslidden this evening, you're a broken reed. Lukewarm saints who have been wounded by sin and compromise, you're a broken reed. Broken spirit, giving forth, perhaps, from your youth, the sound that you shouldn't give forth, an uncertain sound, doctrinally, an uncertain sound in the assurance of your salvation. Maybe through an uncertain sound like the broken reed, you're leading others astray. Or maybe you're blessing with the same tongue that you're cursing with. Forgive me if, I, if you think I'm speaking out of turn. I, I, I know, I, I believe I, I speak to regenerate people this evening. But these scriptures are for all of us to apply to ourselves. And then there's the smoking flax. Smoking believers can distract others so easily, even in the fellowship. Yet what perhaps you and I do to them 
Jesus does not do. He doesn't break the bruised reed. He doesn't quench the smoking flax. He expects the bruised reed to take weight one day again. He expects the smoking flax to, to give forth light once again. He wants a tune to come from the reed that is broken. He wants light to guide others that people may see our light shine to glorify our Father who is in heaven. Jesus is not a discourager. He is the greatest encourager. Isaiah says of the Messiah in chapter 40, he shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. And in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus said, quoting Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recover, recovery of sight to the blind that set at liberty those who are oppressed. There are five spheres in the ministry of Christ that I want to illustrate. Uh, I want to illustrate this attitude and action that he has towards the bruised reed and the smoking flax. The first is before his incarnation. Before his incarnation, the Bible says that his goings forth were of old from everlasting. And it was he who appeared to the patriarchs before he came to Bethlehem in human flesh. Hear the testimony of the patriarch Jacob as he was dying. And of course, Jacob's failings had been many, hadn't they? Blessing Joseph, he said, God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac did walk, the God which fed me all my life long and to this day, the angel which redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. That was his view of God. We read that Christ was the rock that followed the Israelites through the desert. Christ guided them, the Lord Jesus. What attitude did the Lord have to this rebellious group of wanderers? Well, listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 78. But he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and destroyed them not. Yea, many a time turned he his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath. Isaiah says, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. So before his incarnation, 
What about in the days of his flesh, the second sphere? For 33 years he dwelt among them. They beheld his glory. They saw him full of grace and truth. Matthew says, when he saw the multitudes as sheep without a shepherd, he had compassion on them. His heart was filled with compassion. What was his language toward those sheep without a shepherd? He said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, he saw just a little bit of faith in the nobleman who came to him on behalf of his son. But the nobleman's faith was so weak that he thought that the Lord couldn't raise him, raise his son from the dead at a distance. And so he says, sir, come down ere my child die. And what did the Lord say? Did he give him a theological treatise on the omnipresence of God? No. Staggeringly, he yielded to the man's desire and went with him. That man may have been bruised and smoking. How faithless and unbelieving were his disciples. But how often we read that he endured their waywardness and taught them as much as they were able to bear at that moment. Even in the garden, as he was going to Calvary, in great agony, he's near unto death, and he asks three of his disciples to pray, and they fall asleep. He apologizes for them in the statement, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Even when he's arrested, and all his disciples flee, the Bible says he loved them unto the end. And I would add even beyond. The third sphere between the resurrection and the ascension. He rises, tells Mary Magdalene to go and tell the disciples of his rising from the grave. He mentions Peter by name. Inconsolable Peter who betrayed the Lord with oaths and curses. Then we see him joining Cleopas and his companion on the road to Emmaus. And he revives their dying faith and hope. Then he enters the room where the eleven are assembled and he says to their fearful hearts, Peace be unto you. He even condescends to the request of Thomas, put your finger into the nail prints. Put your hand into my side. As he parts from those disciples, he gives them a blessing. And what about following his return to heaven? I'm sure you've heard the phrase, out of sight, out of mind. That's often the case, isn't it? 
but not so with the Lord Jesus Christ. As soon as he came into his kingdom, he remembered his followers. Immediately he sends another comforter. We read that presently he is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He appears in the presence of God for us. He was seen by the dying Stephen, the first Christian martyr. He was seen at the right hand of God. Paul tells of his own experience that Christ stood with him when he stood before Nero, when everyone else forsook him. Even when the Lord addressed the seven churches in Asia in Revelation, and he, he justly reproves their faults on occasion, but in kindness and love, he notices and commends the least degree of faithfulness. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the fifth sphere is our future. We find that at, we find that at the end of verse 20. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory. Until he leads justice to victory, it literally means. In other words, he will never cease to mend bruised reeds and to fan smoking flaxes until that last day in the great consternation when, when sin will be completely done away with and all the consequences of sin will be banished forever from our persons and from the universe. As Paul said in Philippians 1 verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. The Lord is using a, a grammatical device called litotes. He is saying the positive in the form of a negative. That's why in Matthew's gospel, we find him imparting strength to the weak, to those who are pining away and ask for help. They get it. He heals the sick in chapters 4, 9, 11, 12. He seeks and saves tax collectors, Matthew himself being one, and other sinners. He comforts mourners in chapter 5. He cheers the fearful in chapter 14. He even grants pardon to those who repent in chapter 9. What is Christ's attitude and action towards the bruised reed and the smoking flax? He will never break a bruised reed. If you're a smoking flax, he will never quench you. He will actually do the opposite. And then finally, and briefly, to delve in further in application of this wonderful truth. What consolation can we take from such a text? Many, 
including myself, I have to admit, feel like a broken reed and a smoking flax. Let me share with you what consolation this text was to one great man of God, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book, Preaching and Preachers. He says this, I shall never cease to be grateful to one of the Puritans called Richard Sibbs, who was balm to my soul at a period in my life when I was overworked and badly overtired, and therefore subject in an unusual manner to the onslaughts of the devil. In that state and condition, to read theology does not help. Indeed, it may well nigh be impossible. What you need is some gentle, tender treatment for your soul. Richard Sibbs's book, The Bruised Reed, quieted, soothed, comforted, encouraged, and healed me. Even in ministry, perhaps especially so, and I, I use the term ministry in its broadest sense, not just ministers, not just pastors, not just men in the pulpit or full-time workers, but all the ministry in God's work. You can often get bruised. Even great men like the doctor got bruised. Maybe you can identify with him. Overworked. Badly overtired. Subject in an unusual manner to the onslaught of the evil one. Is that you? Often Christians are ignorant of the fact that the body, soul and spirit are intricately connected. Often when the body is sick or tired, it can affect your soul, it can affect your spirit. Martin Lloyd-Jones said he didn't need to read theology. You know, that's what Job's comforters gave him, wasn't it? Theology. And some of it was good theology. But it wasn't what he needed. It's so easy to quote cliches and even scripture verses when what's necessary is, as Lloyd-Jones says, some gentle treatment for your soul. And he found it in Richard Sibbs's book, The Bruised Reed, which, of course, is taken up with our text. But ultimately, he found it in the words of the one who said, a bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. Will you take consolation in it? Rather, not in it, will you take consolation in him? If you're a bruised reed today, what do you think the Lord's attitude towards you is? In uh, the film, some of the older folk here might remember this film called The, the Agony and the Ecstasy. 
There's a film about Michelangelo painting the Sistine Chapel. And there's a scene where the Pope, uh, Julius II, mounts the scaffold in absolute fascination to see Michelangelo's depiction of God himself. And the Pope asks the question, is that how you see him, my son? Well, how do you see him? How do you see him? It's my prayer that you will see him as one who will not break the bruised reed nor quench the smoking flax, that your soul may be comforted and encouraged. Let the Lord bless that to us this evening.